is the fear for and care of the ecclesia. And for his opening reading, we'd like us to turn to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. 2 Corinthians 11:28 Beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily the care of all the ecclesias like to call your attention now to brother Tom Good morning, everyone. It is a real pleasure for me and my family to be here with all of you, to see all of you, to escape the feet of snow. We were lucky to get out. shouldn't say lucky. We are blessed to be with you and to be able to uh, get out of Denver. We have had a wonderful time and sincerely have uh, enjoyed our stay, and we thank you all for your hospitality, the invitation. I have been truly edified by the words that have been brought to us this weekend, starting with Brother Dan on Friday, this need to be separated, very poignant verse in Nehemiah 13, which he read and brought to our attention, that the common language had even been lost amongst the Jews. And truly, Lord, that or truly for us, that resonates, I think, in our day, that to a degree the common language of the truth has been lost. We heard words of exhortation also on Saturday morning from Brother Mike, this need to contend, and that has become a predominant theme, because contending and speaking and defending the truth is something that must be performed. In its silence it is lost, in its silence it is washed over, it is distorted, it is polluted. We heard the lecture last night regarding this ceiling, this impress to be put upon us. And whether that occurs at our calling or our baptism, it can be lost and lose uh, its ability to be identified. And so it's critical for us that we maintain all of the aspects of that ceiling. And we heard excellent words in our Sunday school this morning from Brother Darrell Pye, and what comes to mind regarding all of the events that he was discussing in the consolation of Israel is a verse in Malachi 4, Malachi 4.5, speaking of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, what does that verse, what question is begged from that verse? I send you Elijah the prophet before that great and terrible day of the Lord. I believe that that clearly states that Elijah must return to start cultivating 
this one-third of Jews before the Gogian invasion. Therefore what? He has been raised, he has been resurrected, and judged righteous. Therefore what? Judgment has already occurred or is occurring. Therefore what? We may not see the Gogian invasion. It is this calm, it is this malaise, it is this Laodicean time frame where we are asleep and Christ returns as a thief to the world, should not return as a thief to the household. But this is the time in this incredible sense of ease and wealth and Laodicean provision in every aspect that Christ returns. So if you are anticipating large events such as the Gogian host to come down, you are in essence putting off getting your house in order for a foxhole conversion, which you may not have. And so the time to get your house in order is right now in this strange calm before the storm. We are to be in the peak of our race in terms of running. We are to be breathing heavily because we are exhausted from all of the energy that we have been putting in. We are at the peak and the fastest point of our sprint, as it is styled in analogy and allegory by Paul. So our thoughts this morning are centered around the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.28. And what I have launched in is the sense of urgency we must have in this strange calm right now. Prophecy does that for us. There are two pillars on which the gospel stand. The things concerning the kingdom which are prophetic, those things that have been fulfilled and are yet to be fulfilled, and the name of Jesus Christ. Those two pillars uphold the gospel. You cannot have one without the other, otherwise you do not have the gospel. Prophecy is the engine that drives our walk, as a phrase that I have latched onto from Brother Tommy Asbell. It's the engine that gives you the sense, the purpose, the reason for why you are trying to follow all of these commandments of Christ, which are essential. It's the other pillar. That is the context, because these events are happening before our eyes. So critical to our exposition of this verse this morning, because we want to get an understanding of what Paul is feeling, his disposition. What's the point or the position that he is coming from when he says these things uh, in 2 Corinthians 11.28? So critical to this is the correct context and the sense of the words used by Paul in verse 28. The phrase, that which cometh upon me daily, in the King James, is rendered in the New American Standard Version as, there is the daily pressure upon me. In the complete Jewish Bible, the phrase is rendered, there is the daily pressure of my anxious concern for all the congregations. Now the word pressure is this Greek word, 1999, it's episostasis, and it means a conspiracy regarding a large crowd or a concourse, either riotous or friendly. That which cometh upon or raising up. Now the marginal reference takes us over to Colossians 2.1. And if we want to look at that quickly, we'll get the comparative sense. Colossians 2.1 says this, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, 
this conflict or this fear or this care is what Paul was feeling. And that gives us a little bit more clarity. The word conflict is rendered in the margin as fear or care, as I mentioned. In other uh, versions, the New American Standard and the Complete Jewish, the Complete Jewish reads it as thus, how hard I work for you. In the New American Standard, it is rendered as the word struggle, which is Greek word 73, agon. And it means a place of assembly where by implication a contest is held. An effort or anxiety, a conflict, contention, fight, or race. With these definitions, we're now better able to grasp the disposition of Paul, the environment that he was referencing, and the sense of his words. Now, brethren, as we will seek to demonstrate this morning, Paul's disposition is one of ongoing, anxious concern for the ecclesias. He is stressed, he is under pressure, he is greatly concerned, and this is constantly weighing upon him, and this is what weighs in his mind. This anxiety felt by Paul is resonant in his tireless efforts and labors to preserve and present this body, the bride, to its future bridegroom, Christ. To validate this, we simply need to look at 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 2, verse 11. Let me correct that. The second verse of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. And this was read last night, I believe. But it reads like this, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So he was jealous and very concerned over this body of believers. As we hope to discover this morning, this ongoing effort was one of pressure, anxiety, contention, conflict. It was an ongoing fight. It was a difficult challenge or race with a crowd or group of believers gathered into ecclesias or assembled together. And these, this is the sense of the words that Paul is using in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Now, in order to understand Paul's mindset or his position, uh, his mental position, we need to review the backdrop on which Corinthians is laid, the pretense of these two epistles. Corinth was the capital of the Roman, Roman province of Achaia, a center of government and commerce. It was located on the great trade route between Rome, Ephesus, and Syrian Antioch. Ships would dock at Sincrea on the eastern side of the Isthmus, and passengers in transit would cross overland about 3.5 miles to board another ship at Lycaeum. Because the ground was stony, it was unable to grow any type of agriculture or farming commerce, the populace turned to the traffic of the sea and merchants for its livelihood. Corinth was the hub of commerce. Traveling merchants and, uh, would populate this, and so it was a diverse group of ethnicities. All types of people came into contact or uh, amalgamated together here in the city. There was a considerable number of Jews at Corinth, no doubt engaged in the commerce of the city. There had also been some Jewish immigration from Rome as, a, as the result of Claudius from Acts 18.2. When Paul arrived at Corinth, he went to the synagogue and commenced to argue there, present the truth. Uh, he was, uh, and he reasoned that the Messiah was Jesus in Acts 18.4. The Jews found the doctrine of the atonement, or Christ crucified, a stone of stumbling, from 1 Corinthians 1.23. And their violent reaction to Paul's preaching forced him to leave the synagogue 
and continue his preaching next door, from Acts 18, 6-8. The Jews then unsuccessfully sought the power of Rome, vested in Galileo, the proconsul of Achaia, to curtail his preachings, as we also read there in Acts 18. And now we also have Greeks in this mix. Although Achaia was conquered in, or by the Romans in uh, 146 B.C., the Greek culture still flourished. So as you start to put all of these pieces together, you're going to start to see quite a diverse and what I would say very challenging and complex environment to try to grow the truth in. Not only are you going to have different ethnicities or backgrounds, you're going to have cultures, you're going to have beliefs, you're going to have commerce on top of that, and all of these things collide, and yet this is the place where Yahweh, through the Spirit, says that I have much people there. Now, the philosophies of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates were reflected in the Grecian love for rhetoric, argument, and oratory. The preoccupation with Ginzico, or knowing by reason, was evidenced in the Ecclesia by those who denied the resurrection of the body. We see this contention or argument in 1 Corinthians 15.35 and also verse 12. In general, the ethical system of the Greeks assumed that to know or to experience something, to know it, was to do. At Athens, Paul's open-air speaking in the marketplace resulted in a confrontation with the Stoics and the Epicureans. So we see in Acts 17. The former were rigidly ascetic, and the latter hedonistic, maximizing pleasure as the ultimate good in life. The, these philosophers misunderstood the doctrine of the resurrection and the preaching about Jesus, thinking that Paul was a setter forth of strange gods. Paul was regarded by the Greeks of Athens as a mere babbler, as it says in Acts 17, 18. A disparaging word implying that he was a mere seed picker, a plagiarist, and not an original thinker. This is how the Greeks would have received Paul. To such where the Greeks championed the athlete with physique and physical prowess, and to such the preaching of a crucified Messiah, dying on the cross, helpless, was the height of folly to them. From 1 Corinthians 1, 21-24. There were also descendants of Roman aristocracy, placed there by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. So who would have thought that Corinth, with all of its wickedness, its vice, and philosophies, would have afforded fertile soil for the growth of the gospel. It would be akin to starting ecclesias from the masses residing in New York or San Francisco or New Orleans and the university systems of Berkeley or Columbia. Atheistic, humanistic, liberal, uh, hedonistic philosophies and religions. And yet in and amongst these Worldly vices was a group of believers ready and receptive to take hold of the word. The choice, however, in respect to Corinth was not by the flesh, but it was divine. And it's, as it says, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. From Acts 18, 9 through 10. So the composition of the ecclesias themselves were marred with difficulty just by their makeup and fraught with wicked influences. Immorality, immorality excuse me, defined as the word pornea, 
was manifest in the temple at Aphrodite, dedicated to the worship of Venus, which stood on a mountain in the province of Achaia, about 1,800 feet above the sea level. It was attended to by a thousand priests and priestesses for the pornea of that temple. It was from Corinth to note that Paul wrote the first chapter of his epistle to the Romans and quotes this, or says this, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, from Romans 1.28. There were also numerous mystery cults with secret initiation rites, and so the list goes on and on. And so I think that we have described to us clearly very difficult landscape or climate or environment for which Paul had to go and start ecclesias from. The pressure of this environment on the Corinthian believers was also reflected in the ecclesias. And hence the reasoning of 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3 showing that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The Lord knoweth that the thoughts of the wise or knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Paul spoke the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden, hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, from 1 Corinthians 2.7. And as Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. And I think that we would be hard-pressed to find a worse environment today, but frankly, I think that we could find similar environments today. And so following the words of Solomon... Really, there is nothing new under the sun. Though we have the rapid pace of technology and metal and steel and electronics and digital era, the substance of man and his weakness and the desires of his flesh are identical to what they have always been. And we'll go on to prove this later. Now, 2 Corinthians, as we look at two different books, is in contradistinction to 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is, a, is intensely autobiographical. And this is important. More can be learned about Paul himself in 2 Corinthians than any of the other epistles. It is a very subjective letter written in a spirit of self-vindication. And that begs the question, why is he having to vindicate himself so often and frequently in the second epistle? That gives us a clue to what is happening in the ecclesia. The epistle is colored at almost every turn by Paul's retorts to the allegations of the Judaizers. And some of those uh, allegations include the following. And I want to move through this list, but I do want to read all of these points because it starts to build a clear picture of what Paul was up, uh, what, what he was up against. You know, we can read certain sections of Corinthians and the other epistles and we can be taken by the the love, the warmth, the aspects of, the, of what he's talking about, which is important and has its place. But when you understand the climate that he was preaching in and amongst, he is on the defensive most all the time. He is accused from everything from embezzling funds to self-assuming his apostleship to all of these things by not only Judaizers, but other believers as well. The first allegation specifically from the Judaizers was this. Paul's apostleship was self-assumed. 2 Corinthians 3.1 Unlike the real apostles appointed by Christ, Paul was merely instructed in Jerusalem and commissioned by the twelve rather than by Christ. 
Paul therefore lacked apostolic authority. And this is a common claim against Paul. Paul replied by saying that he had seen Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.8. His gospel came directly from Christ and not from the other apostles. Turn over to uh, Galatians 1 as he vindicates himself regarding this accusation. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, from verse 1, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Also look at verse 12. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Skip on down to 16. To reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. And verse 17. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. His preaching was, or he was preaching the gospel before he met the apostles. So his instruction did not come from them as it was allegated or accused. His first trip to Jerusalem was to see Peter, with whom he stayed with for only 15 days. The only other apostle he saw was James in Galatians 1, 18 and 19. On his second visit to Jerusalem, he was not instructed to go there to be taught by the apostles, but rather he went by revelation. Galatians 2, verse 2. He was unknown to the Jerusalem Ecclesia, so he did not receive his instruction from them. Galatians 1, 22. It was also, uh, or the, another allegation from the Judaizers against him was that he was a vacillating opportunist who pretended to serve God, but really served himself. You can see this recorded in 2 Corinthians 1.12, and also verse 17, and also Galatians 1.10. Paul flatly rejected the charge on the ground that if he was a man-pleaser, he could not be the slave of Christ, which he says in Galatians 1.10. The fact that he was a convert from Judaism to the truth was in itself proof that he was no man-pleaser. He was prepared to even bring God as a witness to vouch for his integrity, excuse me, integrity of, quote, holiness and godly sincerity, from 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 23. The Judaizers, and not Paul, were the cowards. They desired to make a good showing in the flesh, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, from the RSV in Galatians 6, 12. He attacked them as enemies, of the truth and false brethren brought in who, quote, came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, Galatians 2.4. He warned other ecclesias regarding their influence, beware of dogs, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit, from Philippians 3. It was accused against him that he had adulterated the truth by his teaching, which we heard about this morning, let us do evil that good may come, sin that grace may abound, from Romans 3.8 and 6.15. Paul's reply is that it was a slanderous charge. In Romans 3.8, Paul taught the opposite, as we heard this morning, God forbid, from Romans 6.2. Now, in addition to these allegations, there were specific allegations brought against him at Corinth that he had an insincere purpose or insincerity of purpose from 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 14 and also 2 Corinthians 10. 
Paul refutes this allegation on the basis of the following. The testimony of his own conscience. He presents his conscience as bearing testimony in a law court. We have behaved in the world and still more towards you with holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom. In 2 Corinthians 1.12. He substantiates or vindicates himself further by saying his sufferings and afflictions, these he endured at every turn. From 2 Corinthians 4. And so this was incompatible with the charge of insincerity of purpose. He was carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus was manifest in his mortal body. In further defense of himself, his divine commission, God had committed to him the mystery of reconciliation. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 19-20. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Again from the RSV in 2 Corinthians 2.17. The Corinthians also accused him of being domineering. When Paul threatened use of authority, Paul, it was argued, or Paul defended himself in arguing that it was disciplinary in intention not to destroy. From 2 Corinthians 10 verse 8, it was done in agape love and not designed to lord it over your faith, as he says in 2 Corinthians 1.24. He promised, I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. From 2 Corinthians 13.2. As to whether Paul came with love or a rod, as it says in 1 Corinthians 4.21, depended on their response, not his domineering predispositions, but yet he was accused of being a domineering lording over them type of apostle which they would even accuse that he was a self-assumed apostle and like I mentioned earlier he was accused flatly of embezzling ecclesial finances 2nd Corinthians 7 verse 2 it had been charged quote I was crafty you say and got the better of you by guile Paul replies he did not want their money I seek not what is yours or your money, but you. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. 2 Corinthians 12.14 Nor had any of Paul's assistants embezzled any funds. Of Titus, he says, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have taken advantage of no one. This starts to read like a real laundry list. Imagine yourself in Paul's position on your heels and on the defensive as you have the Holy Spirit and are concerned and zealous and jealous over these people to present them as a bride for Christ, and this is how they are responding. These are the contentions that you were dealing with. They would wear on anybody. He was also accused that he had two-faced inconsistency. He was bold when absent, but humble when present. 2 Corinthians 10.1 It was accused that his letters were weighty, while he was writing or while absent, but bodily presence, he was weak and his speech of no account. In 2 Corinthians 10, 9 through 10, 
Paul's response was, let such people understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. So here he had to affirm, I am consistent, not only in my actions and my principles, but in my message. Even if Paul was unskilled in speech, and we know that he was, he was not in knowledge. He was not deficient to any degree. So he says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not in knowledge. In every way we have made this plain to you in all things. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 6. He was accused that he was a pseudo-apostle. His apostleship and authority were merely arrogated, or it was self-assumed without right. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 12, and also 2 Corinthians 13, verse 3. Paul replies by assailing the one that had accused him, and the leader of this faction, for such men are false prophets and deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan, or the chief adversary, disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 2 Corinthians 11.14 Paul continues, For I am not at all inferior to these supreme apostles, or these superlative apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostleship were performed among you with all patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So brethren, as we take a breather here, this list, this account, is really incredible. It opened my eyes and frankly was sobering, uh, and to a certain degree it was an, an epiphany to regard the immense pressure and stress that Paul was under. And this doesn't include the physical beatings, the stonies, the shipwrecks, the robberies, the perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils by the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, which adds to the list in 2 Corinthians 11, 24-27. All of these things, those without and the stress within, and it's key to understand the parameters here, within the ecclesia, weighed upon Paul. So whatever light-hearted preconceptions we may have had about Paul, and I don't submit that any of us had, his commission or his message, or the ecclesias that he worked to set up, or these epistles that he penned, needs to be quickly and permanently discarded from our minds. Paul was in daily contention against every wicked influence, against every emergent apostasy, and every fleshly vice, in addition to numerous ongoing false allegations that he had to vindicate himself against in his undying effort to preserve a group of faithful ones in and throughout these fledgling upstart ecclesias. He was not fretting about in worry or in fear, in the sense of being anxious or faithless, but truly he was perplexed, though not dismayed. He was deeply concerned and stressed for their very survival. And again, this pressure weighed heavily upon him, constantly. Now when we fast forward many thousands of years, not many thousands, almost 2,000, we come up to Brother Thomas's time, and we find some remarkable parallels. Because as we look backwards in time, we assume that our day is, is the very worst. And to an extent, it is, but to another 
fully observed uh, extent, it's not. It is the same, as Solomon says. So when we look at uh, this era of about 1840 through 1900, we see some remarkable parallels of sentiment and assessment regarding the brotherhood of the day. The sentiment stems from a letter that Brother Thomas wrote in 1866 to brethren in West Hoboken, Hudson County, New Jersey. The letter is a reply to the brethren that had petitioned him or uh, petitioned Brother Thomas's opinion or assessment on the state of Christadelphia in 1866. He writes in a July 30th letter, quote, I entirely agree with your graphic description of the barrenness of Christadelphia. Yet dry and withering as things appear within its limits, all exterior to it is scorched and destitute of any vitality at all. The Christadelphian body in the days of the apostles abounded with professors whose hearts were but little attuned to the faith and hope they professed. Peter styles them washed hogs. And Paul, as little complimentary or complimentary of them, as he terms them liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. These were creatures who had crept in unawares and spoke evil of those things which they understood not. Clouds they were without water, carried about of winds of doctrine and sporting themselves with their own deceivings by which they beguiled unstable souls and brought the way of truth into disrepute. And so we hear those words uh, said again, as we heard yesterday morning, out of Jude. The influence of these who passed themselves off for Christadelphians was more disheartening to the apostles and the rest of the real brethren of Christ than all the opposition that Satan could bring to bear upon them from without. And that's the point. Such antagonists were the occasion of great vexation and mortification to the apostles whose work of faith and labor of love they neutralize and render to a great extent ineffectual. They were zealous, they were zealously affected, or they zealously affected the brethren, but not well. Their zeal was not for the honor and promotion of the truth as taught by the apostles, but for the development of a theology that should be more acceptable to flesh and blood and profitable to themselves. The truth as it is in Jesus was too exclusive and uncharitable for their piety and liberality of soul. Well, there's a lot of words in there. It's too exclusive, it's uncharitable, and it's liberal. It was too sectarian, as a common phrase is heard, especially in our daily newspapers regarding Iraq. These different sects had divided, and they were terribly afraid of being made responsible for those characteristics deemed odious by the fashionable religionists of their day which were inseparable from the sect everywhere spoken against. The way of salvation taught by this sect was too narrow for them. They wanted a broader way whereby some good, pious souls might be saved who did not belong to the apostolic sect or party. Broaden the truth. Expand it that we might expand its numbers and water it down that it might be more palatable to those that do not like the exclusivity of what the truth is. If truth is not absolute, what is it? It is relative to your situation. It is relative to your idea. If morality is not absolute, then what is it? It's situational. It's a situational ethic. 
It's a relative ethic. And based upon your approach to it, or the situation you're in, or the means by which you want to alleviate your own guilt, you deem it with your own opinion. It is important to remember that Paul's concern, his anxiety stemmed from uh, within the ecclesia and for brethren within the ecclesia. We're not discussing the peoples without. We're not talking about the temple of Aphrodite. We're not talking about the religions or the merchants passing through. We're talking about those that he had called out and gathered into assemblies called ecclesias that he was preaching the truth to. In the case of the Galatian ecclesia, Paul exudes blunt and unvarnished rebuke. The Galatians were a community of people who had known the truth of God's word and become part of the one body of Christ. But Paul wrote of them, I marvel that you were so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. No wonder that he remonstrated with them, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Galatians 1.6 Now these words, words were strong indeed, but there was obvious need for them. The word rendered foolish means unreflecting. And we can think of what flesh is supposed to do at its best capacity, which is limited, and that is to, at this point in time in our probation, reflect God's glory. The most glaring example of this is when Moses came down from the mountain. His face shone that the people of Israel could not bear to look at it. The rays in the Hebrew are identified as horns of power. So we have this, you know, we can imagine the dramatic display of Moses' face, his flesh shining. And that is key in its symbolism to what we are supposed to do in a limited, limited capacity today, is reflect God's glory. When changed to spirit, as we all hope to be, we will be able to emanate God's glory. Because there, were no, there will no more be a veil of flesh that limits or hinders that. So the word rendered foolish means unreflecting. Never applying the mind to moral or religious truth. Hence, the, his response, O senseless Galatians or thoughtless Galatians. Commenting on this subject is a 1986 Logos article by Brother Allman, which says this, Is this terminology too blunt and outspoken? Does it represent the unvarnished truth with unnecessary firmness and inflexibility? By no means. Would Moses, Jeremiah, Paul, or other faithful men of God have shown their love for God and for their brethren by minimizing the problems facing the brethren? Would they have been doing a service to the truth by adopting a compromising stand in regard to the spiritual need of their brethren? Not in any sense. The article continues. Men such as Paul cared anxiously for the spiritual well-being of their brethren. Remember, he was jealous that this group, who he was commissioned to gather, be presented an acceptable bride to Christ. I mean, you can look at his judgment linked to that commission. Now, he's not earning his salvation by works, of course, but that was the commission given to him divinely. Do this. Accomplish this. And he didn't just fear for his own salvation. As we'll read later, as we heard yesterday morning, he understood clearly that the purpose of God trumped all individual salvation. But to be a participant in glorifying his name was something that he was deeply, deeply bought into. The article continues, Much 
or men such as Paul cared anxiously for the spiritual well-being of their brethren. They therefore spoke out, refusing to give ground on issues upon which the survival of the purity of the truth stood endangered. In their foolishness, the Galatians had allowed themselves to become bewitched, or as the question has been posed, has someone put a spell on you? Both renderings capture the meaning of the expression, and the implication is clear. Some person or persons, not let it be noted from the world at large, but from within the ranks of the Brotherhood, had captured the interest and attention with devastating results. It was not that the Galatians had decided that they were fed up with the truth and wished to embark upon a new religious experience. Simply, due to their lack of understanding and maturity in the word, they had fallen easy prey to the influences which had moved amongst them, undermining apostolic teaching. False brethren parading themselves as pious worshipers of God had introduced their own speculative ideas into the ecclesia with disastrous results. Paul had no time for those who speculated upon religious philosophies, for he recognized them as being only negative and destructive. He was well aware of the danger inherent in human pride and pomposity, and he opposed such trends uncompromisingly. So did Brother Thomas, and so should we, and rightly so. How can professing men of God claim to have integrity if they are prepared to remain silent whilst brethren and sisters are led away from the path which leads to eternal salvation? And so concludes that article. You see, Paul was not a skilled politician striving to arrive at a peace-at-any-price arrangement for those who were destroying Christ's brethren. After all, the, quote, word of reconciliation had been committed to the apostles. It is to be observed that it did not originate with them. This isn't their own idea. But was committed to them, God being the author of it. And that's a key point. How would we treat the truth if in a vision or in some sort of dramatic, miraculous, attesting sign, we were given specific words to speak, such as the apostles, specific words to pen, specific words to prophesy, would we feel inclined to alter it or adjust it at any point? We would not. We would be in fear and awe of the revelation that we had received. And we may feel inclined to not approach a certain city like Jonah did, but we're not about to change the words that we had divinely received. And so it was with Paul. Since Paul was a man of integrity, was it not essential that Paul remained unreservedly faithful to that word of reconciliation which had been committed to his care? Should we expect, or expect that Paul could have made adjustments to his position to accommodate the freethinkers of his day who were busily demoralizing the faithful and steadily weakening the strong foundations upon which the ecclesias had been established? There were conditions upon which men and women or there are conditions upon which men and women may find peace with God. And the members of the Ecclesia should be fully equipped to proclaim those conditions to a perishing world. In the days of Moses and Jeremiah, such was not the case. And in the times of Paul, many Ecclesias, once sound in the faith, were no longer capable of proclaiming the conditions for reconciliations with, reconciliation with God, because they no longer understood those conditions themselves. Now here's another point. Name the prophet that was well received by his audience. Name the prophet that was welcomed with open arms as he continued to preach 
the Word of God or the prophecy given to him. You'd be hard-pressed to find any. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, which we talked about this morning. They were all basically in fear for their own life. Spit upon, rejected, and the greatest prophet himself crucified by his own brethren. Brothers and sisters, the purpose of our individual walk and our walk collectively as Ecclesia is best expressed in these words, which we heard uh, from Brother Mike yesterday morning. But I think it's important to say it again. Men were not ushered into being for the purpose of being saved or lost. That is not the pinnacle point of us being called or participating in this plan and purpose of Yahweh. God manifestation, not human salvation, was the grand purpose of the eternal spirit. The salvation of a multitude is incidental to the manifestation, but it was not the end proposed. The eternal spirit intended to enthrone himself on the earth and, in so doing, to develop a divine family from among men, every one of whom shall be spirit because born of the spirit, and that this family shall be large enough to fill the earth when perfected to the entire exclusion of flesh and blood. If this purpose remains fixed in the forefront of our minds, then we retain the moral and doctrinal clarity of the truth. All actions, all behaviors, all attitudes, all doctrine must be sounded against or sounded or bounced off this understanding to see if they build up or tear down such a lofty purpose. And that being the purpose that Yahweh has declared for himself, that as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And we're coming into our conclusion. So, how do we stand in these last days? What is our priority and what is our clarity regarding that priority? How does it sit within our minds? The ecclesia is firstly, like the individual, is to glorify Yahweh. So all actions must be sounded against that principle. A few more words from uh, Brother Thomas's letter in 1866, which I think, think needs repeating here. Uh, this is an interesting point. Do you expect poor, decrepit human nature to evolve holier influences now than it was socially capable of under, a, under apostolic ministration of the Spirit? Or do we expect that our general... Uh, walk in state of Christadelphia where the truth is going to be better or holier, as it's termed, than it was with men who had the Holy Spirit during that era? I believe that you do not, he continues. It would be very pleasant if there were none in Christadelphia but the called, the faithful, and the chosen, all of one mind, and with one mind and one mouth glorifying God. If all understood the truth and were governed by it, who profess to believe it, there would be a very different state of things to what has obtained in any age or generation, past or present. But ecclesiastical perfection is not to be expected in the absence of Christ. We're not going to get it. Till he comes, the wheat will be mingled with the tares in such proportion as to keep the faithful in tribulation and the exercise of patience. The kingdom of heavens preached is still, parabolically, a net cast into the sea, gathering all sorts of fish, good and bad, and indifferent or apathetic. And I believe that's the plague of Laodicea, apathy and indifference. 
When the net is full, it is landed on the shore, and its contents are sorted by the master. All the good fish are gathered into vessels for his use, but the bad are cast away. This arrangement cannot be altered. The good and bad fish will continue to swim in the same waters until the end comes, and that end, it is hoped, is very near. For it is by no means pleasant or comfortable to swim in waters full of sharks and serpents of the sea. Brethren, the prophets of the Old Testament suffered rejection, humiliation, violence, and even death. Most of all, the New Testament disciples suffered violent deaths. And the greatest prophet of all, as I mentioned earlier, was rejected and crucified by his brethren, even Jesus. Look at James 5.10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. And your cross-reference can be Amos 5.10. So what have we learned regarding Paul and this care or fear and concern and anxiety for the ecclesia? We have learned that through much tribulation or rendered pressure do we enter into the kingdom of God. This is the deal. This is the environment. This is the test. This is the probation. This is the fight. And this is the reason for our exhaustion when Christ returns. And it is what we contend for, and this is how we work out our faith with fear and trembling. And this is why Paul could say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Because he exhausted himself in this effort. You must have a face of flint and nerves of iron, Brother Thomas would say, if you would do real service in the house of God. It was only by such a constitution of face and nerves the prophets were able to acquit themselves worthily in the presence of a stiff-necked and perverse generation. They maintained the truth without compromise. They cried aloud and spared not, lifted up their voice like a trumpet, showing Yahweh's people their transgression and Jacob their sins. This is as necessary now as in the days of Isaiah. Now while we enjoy many temporal blessings today, and I would say too many blessings, frankly, too much ease, too much wealth, that has distorted our view and our priority. You know, the farmer in the agrarian society depended upon the Lord to bring the rain. You did what you could in terms of planting and tilling the ground, but you waited upon the Lord. And if the rain did not come, you did not eat, and you did not harvest. Men would be able to work with sons and empower them. The transfer of truth, as in Deuteronomy, could be talked about daily. Examples could be shown. Today, fathers go to their own workplace and don't see their children until either they're asleep or very late at night. And so the interaction is suffering. The transfer of truth is suffering. The time in the day is suffering to read and serve the Lord and to maintain a correct perspective. So while we enjoy many temporal blessings today, our joy is truly the joy set before us. It is a city whose builder and maker is God, the future kingdom. This is the reason that we had the words left for us, Lo, I am with you always, because we would need this in our probation now. The words of su support that are left in these scriptures in its entirety are for us now. Do you think that a spiritual being needs all these words of comfort? There will be no more tears. There's no more stress. There's no more worry. 
as a spiritualized um, or I'm of spirit when that is uh, we are changed from flesh. You don't need the comfort and the endurance. That has been achieved. Or that state has been given. And we have been quickened and changed. So this is the reason that we would need all these words. And this is the reason that we need to look upon Paul's example and say, we are in good company. We have others that have plowed the ground before us, and we will pick up the mantle and continue on. Because we are not uniquely suffering. We do not have to be uh, extraordinary in terms of our ability to have patience because the ones before us have manifested that to a great degree. And it's just part of the deal when we contend in this world and more specifically in this ecclesia. We would need the words of Paul when the trials, not just of the world, but of the brotherhood, would vex us and wear us down. And so therefore he says, quit yourselves like men. Let us close with the words spoken to Joshua. And as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do all according to the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Brethren, in this day and age, this is true courage. Subjecting ourselves for a deferred reward. Not reward and not gain now, but subjecting ourselves and our flesh for a future reward. That is the discipline. And though the world may look upon us as plain and simple, obscure, strange, religionists, fundamentalists, Bible thumpers, so be it. We are preparing ourselves to serve a king, to rule in a righteous government that will rule the world. The leaders of all of these nations will subject themselves to Christ and his government. And we pray that we can be participants in that. There will be roles of fighting, as in the March of the Rainbow Angel. There will be roles of teaching. There will be roles of healing. There will be roles of administration. There will be roles in governance over cities. There will be roles in governments and duties of priesthood. That is an entire work that we can participate in. That is what we defer our hope for. And so we subject ourselves and we dig in, in the now. This is not the ease. This is not the kingdom we are living. We look forward to that. Brethren, this is more than mere words of, encourage, uh, of encouragement by Yahweh to Joshua. Yahweh solidifies his intent when he says, Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of good courage? This is not a recommendation or advice. I command you to stand like a man of God and be of good courage and hold the line. Be not afraid, neither be, be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Thank you.